We're live. People are piling in. We'll just give it a minute. How are you, Rich? I would like to be in a stadium right now, I tell you. I mean, probably an empty stadium, but I wouldn't mind being in a stadium right now. You could go to one in, like, Fortnite. (laughs) (laughs) I will tell you the amount of hours my kids are spending on Fortnite and Roblox is stunning like literally stunning during literally since this started the gap up is mind-boggling so let's get started we've got uh we've got a we got a, a more than a quorum so i'm rich greenfield from Lightshed partners with my partners walt pisick brandon ross and we're really excited to be joined today by casey wasserman the founder and ceo uh of wasserman and, you know, I guess, Casey, I, when I think of you, I think of everything happening in the sports world, like literally all things sports all around the globe, not just Olympics, not just basketball as we're showing off in our backgrounds. But I think of literally as you sort of like a symbol for the kind of the state of sports and where we are in the sports world today. I guess just first off, just how are you and all of your the athletes that you represent? Like, how are people doing? Like, stuck at home, no gyms, no working out, no sports. Like, just how are people doing? Like, mentally. You know, the athletes. You got a huge range, uh, and we represent twenty two hundred athletes in thirty five sports. So we have a pretty good sample size. Uh, um, uh, you've got athletes. Uh, he he made. He's a good follow on Instagram. Austin Matthews, who's arguably one of the two or three best players in the National Hockey League, you know, is is uh, having buddies throw footballs to him into his pool in, in Scottsdale off off the roof of his house, and he seems to be enjoying his best self uh, in Scottsdale while he's not playing for the Maple Leafs. And then you got you know uh, a, a kid like Domas Sabonis, an NBA All Star this year, stuck in a one bedroom apartment in LA, and then you know not no one's thinking of a collection for him. He's but no gym, nowhere to shoot nothing to do. And it's hard. And, and, you know, so I would say a, a lot of the athletes are really have kind of like my 15 year old daughter bouncing off the walls, want to do something, want to be active, don't have an environment to, to, to pursue that. Uh, suffice to say, I can assure you there are some teams around the world, not just in this country who are unofficially officially organizing small group workouts for their athletes unofficially in their facilities that aren't officially open. Uh, so there's some activity going on. Uh, no one wants to sort of admit that and talk about that and, and or publicize it, but there's some activity going on. And I, I think you're, as we get closer to June, you're going to start to see uh, more of that happen officially. Obviously you're going to see some NASCAR races here soon, some golf. Uh, I think you'll see some developments with baseball uh, and clearly you're going to get to a point where, where some of the North American leagues are going to have to make decisions uh, about what they do. And, and so a lot of the athletes are in the same position we all are, which is what's happening, when's it happening, what's safe, what can I do, what can I do, what, what's, where, where are we going to be? And, and you can imagine the uncertainty we all feel in our daily lives with our, our families and our employees and our businesses, they feel. Uh, they're calling their teams and saying, what's going on? Should I get on a plane? Should I not get on a plane? You know, the number of athletes who have said, should we go to Georgia because it's open is, you know, it's, it's, they're, they're humans and and experiencing all the same emotions all of us are. So first of all, for everyone watching us right now, if you have a question, there's a Q and A box, simply type in your question. We'll try to get through as many as we can over the course of the hour. We have Casey. So don't be shy and, and let us know what you're thinking. 
when you think about sports, obviously, um, NASCAR is obviously already announced, but let's turn our kind of lens first overseas. You know, we're seeing a lot of conflicting reports in terms of Bundesliga, Premier League. Uh, Bundesliga keeps pushing off kind of week after week. Do you think we get signs from Europe first about how this starts, or do you think the American leagues are going to actually be the first ones to make big moves in terms of what I would call contact sports? Um, you know, I would have said a week ago, European first for sure. Uh, I think the political environment there is changing pretty quickly. Uh, obviously, Germany and, and England are really the two left, essentially. Uh, France has shut down. Netherlands have shut down amongst the big the big soccer leagues uh, in Europe. But um, a week ago, I would have said they're going to play mid-May for sure. Uh, England, I'm not so sure that's happening, given the uh, the, the, the course of, of what's going on. Uh, Germany, possible, but there's, you know, real political sensitivity. And again, you're dealing with an environment where everyone's in the contact sports, if you will, Rich. Everyone's afraid to be first because the circumstance no one knows how to deal with is okay, do we have pervasive testing? Is that pervasive testing not taking away from someone who, you know, an elderly person who needs that test? So we're not sort of damaging the system to get athletes on the, on the field, if you will. And then what happens if the best player, so get, get test positive? Do you shut down the whole league? You know, the fits and the starts is what I think people are worried about. Do you take a team out of competition? You know, it's, you know, sports is about a level playing field usually. And, and the concern is, does, does this uneven a playing field uh, artificially. And so I still think Europe will probably play contact sports first because I think the NBA and the NHL can wait a little longer given their calendars. They can push their season starts back uh, to kind of November, December if they have to. European football can't. Uh, They got to start because of the football calendar. Now you've got the Euros already scheduled for 21. They got to start in August. And so they can only push back. They got, they're in a pretty tight window that's getting pretty close to the point of no return. So I still think it's more likely that they're going to try and play, but I would not be surprised if it's the NBA and NHL who end up going first. What about Major League Baseball? Is there a chance that baseball will come back before the NBA and the NHL? Well, I think it's very likely baseball will come back. Uh, when, when they actually start to be determined, I think they will announce their plans uh, pretty soon if they can come up with a plan that everyone agrees with. But I think they're, getting, they're moving in that direction. Uh, you know, it's a sport that frankly is relatively naturally physically distanced, except in a couple of places, obviously home plate being one of them. Uh, they can actually be a model of what coming back to work looks like. Uh, and, and I believe that, you know, uh, it's an opportunity, uh, it's a business opportunity for baseball to recapture the hearts of, of a lot of Americans, uh, who look, my kids are both teenagers. They don't watch a whole lot of baseball. And I imagine if there was a Dodger game on right now, they'd watch all nine innings. Uh, and so I think baseball knows that, that they have a unique opportunity here. They have a unique opportunity to sort of enter the, you know, the, the cultural uh, world in a, in a unique way. And I think they have an opportunity to, 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 to do that in a responsible way. And so I actually think baseball, whether they play a game first or not, but will be the most proactive laying out their plans for a whole season before other leagues. What do you think the baseball plan looks like? There's been so so many different scenarios laid out. Arizona and Florida, just Arizona, home ballparks. What do you think the most likely scenario is? Um, I mean, the simple answer is 
Brandon, the more places you go to, the more risk you take. So obviously the perfect environment is one, you know, biodome, if you will, or whatever you want to call it in one place. Um, that has a all bubble. sorts of other, yeah, the bubble. And by the way, uh, you know, Universal started construction of their theme park in China six weeks ago. They have all the employees working on building on that theme park uh, in the bubble, and they haven't had a positive case. So the bubble works. Um, now, there are logistical challenges to having all these teams in one city. Uh, it probably would have been Arizona, which means you've got all sorts of weather issues because you only got one indoor ballpark, and it, it gets complicated in a hurry. Uh, and every time you go to a, another place, um, you take more risk. Uh, and so one is better than two, two is better than three, three is better than four and so on. So I imagine you're going to have a smaller number than a bigger number of locations, although it's all, it's all to be determined. Uh, and I think you're going to be spread around the country so you can manage for both time zones. You got to be in places from a weather perspective with domes. Uh, so it sort of creates a natural locations that you could imagine, you know, Miami, Dallas, Arizona, um, have, have ballparks with, with, with domes on them. But there could be others. Uh, and so the smaller the number, some geographic spread, uh, and, and really condense as much as you can. Do you think baseball will use this opportunity to try some rule changes that it wouldn't have instituted in the past? I mean, it's a time for experimentation. We're doing it right now. Um, <laughs> And that league needs a little bit of tweaking, probably. Yeah, look, I, I hope so. Uh, and, and the commissioner, uh, I think, understands that uh, very clearly. And, and uh, whether it's uh, the pitch clock, uh, uh, electronic strike zone or, or digital strike zone, whatever you want to call it, uh, those kind of things, they absolutely should use this opportunity to implement those. And, and the example I use is think about the NFL draft that just happened, right? I mean, you had the most hardcore people saying what they were going to do was really bastardizing the NFL draft in less than 24 hours after the draft, which happened, which everyone agrees was awesome happened. It was awesome. What are they talking about? How do they take some of those things that they did in that draft and make sure that they're part of the draft next year when you in theory have a normal draft. So these times call for leagues and, and organizations to take some risks. Uh, the NFL did things that didn't think were possible. It might've been, uh, the most proud moment um, in the history of the National Football League, I would tell you that that's not an overstatement. And I would hope that all the leagues uh, take this as an opportunity to th- rethink how they do things. You know, why not? Look, if, if all the broadcasts we watch for baseball have an electronic strike zone, uh, why, why doesn't they just have one as part of the game? I mean, if, if tennis can figure out how to have, you know, uh, complete accuracy with calls, it, it, it makes the game better. And and why add that human element when it's not necessary? Because there's still plenty of moments where human element is going to affect the game and that's okay. And why not? Maybe I'm not saying they should, but maybe they should play seven innings instead of nine. Maybe they should play 130 games instead of 162. I, they, they have to be thinking about those things because if not, you know, shame on them and shame on every other league who just tries to treat it as business as usual. Casey, on the Bill Simmons podcast, you guys are talking about um, L.A. versus Vegas and some of the puts and takes there. Um, has there been any indication about one of those cities offering to, like, build a special venue? Because I thought that was an interesting idea. And also, um, you know, the mayors from those two cities came out with kind of very different comments. Um, and I was trying to think about that, like, which one is 
more embracing like it would you would you want to go to vegas because she wants to open the city up or is that you want to kind of stay away from that because maybe it's you know a little bit more controversial so just kind of your thoughts on la vegas well look okay, let me start with the with, well with the venues um if you have a if you're if you're playing a sport without fans there's no reason to do it in a traditional venue. Uh, and why not, again, going back to Brandon's point, why not experiment with what's the best way to create a, an environment for competition that's designed entirely for television. Uh, and, you know, they've never really done that. And, uh, they maximize the broadcast for television, clearly. And, and I would say every league has roughly, obviously the NFL is an extreme where it's probably 90%, 97% of their fans, I've heard the number, uh, of Arden fans will never see a game in person. So they've optimized it for TV, but imagine a basketball environment designed for television. You know, it's, it's the studio environment and you building those courts is easy. You, you know, you, you easy, easy for me to say that is easy, but relatively speaking easy, you put those courts in, in an environment and you create a really dynamic environment and camera angles in places you otherwise couldn't have them because you don't have fans. And, I think that would be awesome. Uh, there's clearly a political element to where you play. Uh, LA, I know, is quite welcoming. What our mayor actually said was a little bit different than what kind of blew up the headlines. I think what I actually know what he actually said in a private meeting, which was no longer private apparently, what he said is if there's not pervasive testing and if you don't have line of sight on, uh, on not a cure but remedies uh, from a medicine standpoint, he doesn't see how you could play sports in full arenas in this calendar year. He's all for playing sports without fans. And he has talked to the commissioner of every sports league and let them know that LA is open for opportunities uh, if they want to have those conversations. Uh, but I think the NBA is going to put, if they're going to come back, they're going to be in an environment that they can create the best atmosphere for the, the NBA family in the broadest sense. Uh, that's both safe and effective and efficient. You've seen some reports about Disneyland, obviously, or Disney World, sort of the wide world of sports in, in Orlando. And I actually think the location is the least important part. They just need to be a, in, a, in a place that they can deliver and execute the product in a safe and, and efficient and effective way. So is there, is there any indication that those, those discussions with those individual cities have begun? Because it seems like a great idea, particularly on the you know special built venue with special camera angles. But any because we're you know it's May. Like a lot of these, if you go back to a lot of the comments where people talking about in April, they said, "Well, a lot of these decisions are going to be made in May." It's today's May first, so you would think that maybe some of those discussions have started to kick off. Hopefully, yeah. Look, I, I assume they have uh, um, at least on a on a high level. I don't know that they're in specific. Um, um, with each of the cities, but uh, I, I'm sure the NBA has lots of plans in place for different locations, what it looks like, what the requirements are, what they need to have in place to execute the balance of the season and the playoffs. And, uh, and uh, I'm sure that they have talked with the political leaders in the areas they're thinking about. I don't know if it's gone further than that, but I'm sure they have a, a full big set of plans in place. Where do the families kind of play a role in this? I mean, playing remotely players have young families or, you know, whatnot, but like, how does that fit into the equation? Uh, I guess I'm thinking about one, the family side of it, but then also are there players who look at the family situation or even their personal health situation and they say, you know, hand up, I'm out, you know, does this go on? I mean, can certain players opt out of playing? I just wonder like, how does that work? Or is that even an option or people are just too competitive and that's not even a question. 
Uh, it's certainly going to be a question, Rich. I mean, you don't have to go that far back to look at, you know, the golfers and, and athletes who are afraid to go to Rio with all the Zika conversation. Yeah. And, you know, a bunch of players didn't go and a bunch of did. And I think those who didn't go probably regret it. Uh, and if you go back to when I was a kid and Magic Johnson, um, yeah. you know, declared they had HIV, there were a bunch of NBA players that they wouldn't play with them. And that all turned out to be, uh, I mean, I think Carl Malone was one of the leaders of the of the voice of resistance, and that all turned out to be uh, much ado about nothing. So, I, I think what you need is some clarity from medical professionals. What are the real risks? What are the challenges? And how do you sort of manage through and mitigate those? Um, so, I'm sure you'll hear some noise, but I also look. Athletes are unique in the world, which is that they have limited career paths uh, in most sports in terms of duration. And a missed season or a missed portion of a season is money lost forever, right? If if Brad Pitt are, are teams or leagues liable at all if anything happens, like if a player gets you know infected, like is there any liability or people have already signed over their liability when, when they agree to play in these sports? How does that work? Uh, I, mean, uh, I, I don't. I have no idea. I only pretend to be a lawyer, uh, yeah. um, but. Uh, I would assume that they've signed over their liability. You know, there are clearly inherent risks in all sports. They're different in each of the sports, but you know, uh, I think, uh, frankly, if you were just being blunt, a torn ACL will keep you out of action for longer than COVID with, um, a, a normal outcome, if you will, for a young, healthy person. So I don't know that it's, it's a different level of liability than anything else that they're inherently taking on when they play their sport. So if you exclude like Olympic athletes and um, things and just focus on the, the kind of the, the big pro sports, um, where do you think they are in terms of their training now? I assume that if you're a pro athlete, you've got decent facilities at home. Is that an improper assumption? Because just trying to think about the kind of the lead time for any of these sports in, you know, are the athletes maintaining their, their you know, whatever their – flexibility being in shape and get ready to go you've got the whole spectrum i mean you've got uh you know russell westbrook who we represent has got quite a, a home gym he's got a basket in the yeah. backyard and he's probably in incredible shape and then you've got you know first year rookies who are making a couple hundred grand and living in an apartment in a city they weren't from or, or yeah. back to their old cities where the gyms are all closed and they actually have almost nothing uh, and so you have a wide disparity. So you're going to have to have a ramp up time in any of these leagues. Baseball would be sort of a shortened spring training, not in a competitive way, but in a, in a, in a getting back into baseball prepared this way. Uh, NBA, you're going to need at least a couple of weeks for those athletes to get back into it. Hockey, same thing. Uh, and you're, you're going to need a little bit of ramp up time. A and couple of weeks know. of them having all of them having access to the gym. It's not like you're Correct. saying a couple of weeks from we're going to, yeah. Correct. And you know, and you know, I mean, just the world we live in, if second an athlete gets an injury, they're going to say, oh, well, they shouldn't have come back so soon because, uh, I mean, you can, you can write the script. Well, now. as an Eagles fan, I know that theory very well, the, in the, the perpetual injuries. Yeah. So, look, it is what it is. Uh, I think all in all, athletes want to come back. Um, uh, they understand that both they have a role in society to give people hope and inspiration, and then they also have the competitive nature that, you know, they miss playing, they miss competing, and, and uh, if they have to make a sacrifice for a period of time, I think they're prepared to do that. If we just very quickly go through the four major sports, can you just best guess when do you think each of them starts? 
gun to head. Uh, uh, first of all, no guns to heads. I don't like guns. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Water. Um, <laughs> water bucket. Water bucket. Water, great. I can be water. Gatorade bucket. water bucket. Uh, I would say uh, baseball's playing by June 15th. I would say the NHL and the NBA are playing by July 1st. And I think the NFL probably ends up delaying its season till mid-October. We could use some content on television these days. <laughs> awesome. How about EPL? Is EPL <laughs> going to finish the season? I think EPL uh, I think EPL and Bundesliga will finish their seasons. Yes. What about empty stadiums? I mean, we've seen a lot of noise about whether people like empty stadiums or not. Or I mean, it seems like it's going to be a reality for a while. But like, what are you assuming or what are you communicating to players in terms of like, you know, I assume empty stands and even when stands are not empty, I don't know whether people are going to be wearing masks, whether people are going to be sitting six rows apart. Like I, I have no concept exactly of what the rules are going to be, but are, are players anxious or they just simply want to play and this is secondary to playing? So I think look, players are quite adaptable. Playing in an empty stadium will be weird for everybody. Uh, it'll be, you know, I do know that the Warriors, uh, you know, the Warriors had that, you know, San Francisco shut the city down very quickly. And the Warriors had a couple of games scheduled and they were preparing to play those first couple of games without fans. They had a, they were the only team who had a actually plan. And I can just tell you that the players, the first question they asked is, well, can we pick our own music? <laughs> and the, and the team was like, yeah, actually you can. So you're going to get some fun things like that, where you're going to get players sort of like picking the soundtrack of the sound in the stadium and that kind of stuff. It's going to be weird. Um, I am sure that the, the people who produce television will figure out a way to minimize looking at empty stands because, you know, the rule number one is, you know, is the atmosphere on TV is a lot drawn from the atmosphere in the building and an empty building is not a good atmosphere. So it's going to be less than ideal, um, but I'm certain it's better than nothing uh, and, it, and it will be complicated. If, if fans come back in a, in a reduced way, Rich, you know, is it every other seat, every other row? Is it families can sit together, but it's every other row and six seats in between a group? unclear i actually think the seating in the stands is probably the least complicated um part of it because just go back out you you know yes long term there will be changes to how arenas operate but you're not changing the bathroom environment at staples center so now you're gonna if whether there's six thousand or sixteen thousand people at staples center they're all going to the bathroom and they're all sharing the same bathroom what happens in there they're all waiting in line at the same food stand what happens there like there's some stuff that you can't actually change overnight. You can change spacing and seating overnight. Operationally, you can't change a, the way a building actually functions day to day overnight. And that's, a, that's actually a challenge that's a little more nuanced and complicated. We shift to college now. There's been pretty conflicting messages from different schools. I think Stanford's talking about canceling school outright in the fall. And I think the University of Iowa wants to start practice on June 1st. Can any any of these conferences actually play with with some teams playing and other teams not? Well, so it's a really good question, and it's actually I think I think the two sports and Rich we talked about this the other day that are the most vulnerable right now are college football and tennis. And tennis we can get to in a minute, but college football, you know, unlike a league where you have a commissioner and owners and you have a structure to make decisions, uh, you know. 
even in a league like the SEC, Alabama was like, we're playing football. And by the way, it's not all or they actually, I think it was them who said it's not all or nothing. Like if, if, if Auburn doesn't want to play, we're playing. So I saw a quote of like, if the minnows are sinking, we got to keep this ship right. Like right. we got to, we got to go no matter what. We don't care if we lose some on the way. As we sit here today on May 1st, I am absolutely shocked that the NCAA or the conferences or whoever the organization would be has not just unilaterally moved the start date of college football to February. I, I am completely shocked because they are not playing college football September 1st. You know, I'm a, I went to UCLA. Uh, practice would probably start first week of August. We happen to be on the quarter system at UCLA. Students don't show up till end of September. August is whatever, three and a half, four months away. There are healthcare workers living in the dorms today. Uh, and so I would just tell you, I, I don't know how you play college football. I would move the season today to February 1st. I would play one year uh, with only conference games so you can reduce the schedule from 12 to 8, frankly, or something like that and condense the bowls and you can still finish in April and have an NFL draft and, and maintain your TV revenue. Uh, because I worry that without the economics of football, which is pick your number 70 to 90% of the revenue between seating and television, it will decimate college athletics, uh, and disproportionately hurt, frankly, Olympic sports, women's sports, all the other sports downstream. Uh, you might see schools just quit playing, college football altogether i mean i think the ramifications are actually quite staggering and and i that's why i'm surprised they haven't gotten ahead of it and just moved the season to february do you think the reason is because it's sorry let me just i want to just follow up on the political point like is it a political issue like that from a college standpoint like is that what this is going to turn into kind of red versus blue you know how does that evolve you know i'm not sure i actually think one of the big issues is look, you know, the business model of college is pretty simple, right? You tuition, room and board covers the expenses. So by saying there's no college football, you're essentially saying they're probably not students, which means there's not tuition, which means there's not room and board, which means colleges lose a fortune. So it's sort of a marker for the, the balance of the economics of a university. You know, I know my school is losing hundreds of millions of dollars by not um, being in business, if you will. And that's a hard decision to make. So Stanford is a private university. They may have an endowment at a scale that allows them to make that decision. Um, uh, UCLA is a public university and is going to struggle with that decision mightily. Um, Purdue, I mean, Mitch Daniels has really published some really interesting perspective as the, as the head of the university of, uh, in, at, in Purdue, the former governor of Indiana. He's been really a leader in this space. Um, it's, it's all over the place is the short answer. Brown has actually been a real leader in, in talking about uh, coming back to school for students. Uh, it, it just has such broader implications. The college football, funny enough, is, is a marker for, you know, I think you're going to see universities go out of business. Not, not, and they will be, I don't know, UCLA is not going to business. Brown, Stanford, Alabama, they're not going to business. But you're going to have some second and third, third tier universities literally shudder and, and never come back. And, um, that's a, that's a scary proposition. And, and so I think the college football thing is getting complicated by their, the tension of if it was just about sport, I actually think it'd be pretty easy to move the season to February, but because it has such other implications uh, for the university at large, I think it's becoming a lot more complicated for them to, to, to take a simple solution. A few seconds ago, I think you also said teams would 
abandoned playing college football. Can you expound on that a little bit? I, you know, the, the assumption is for most universities, college, is, college football is a big revenue driver, which for a lot of universities it is. For the Power Five, for the most part, it is. But if you're not a Power Five school, you're never winning a national championship. The arms race to compete has gotten um, to a level I'm not sure anybody anticipated. The, the risk, there's, there are real potential health issues. There are cost issues. Is it really worth it to play college football? Are you going to play college football? Or does college football become 50 to 60 schools? And it starts to look a whole lot more like what happens on Sundays than what happens today. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I just think that's a real possibility. And you create a different economic structure for the schools who don't play football. And I don't know that that's, you know, unreasonable. You know, the Big East is a good example. Some of the schools in the Big East play football, some don't. It's really become a basketball conference. You know, does, um, I'm not picking on them, but does Villanova need to play football? Like, I don't know, probably not. You know, take a school like Duke. Small, very high caliber university do they need to play college football maybe maybe not uh and so i think just moments like this cause people to ask questions that they may not otherwise have asked as quickly is gate a big issue for college or is it more is it mostly with the uh tv rights and um predominantly tv rights and gate not in the traditional sense ironically for 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 those of you who went to universities that have you know college football programs at scale. Um, the ticket prices aren't expensive. It's the donation you have to make in, in, in coordination with the ticket price that's expensive. And obviously a lot of the, a lot of the ticket sales at universities are, are students, which are essentially free or cheap. So it's just a means for fundraising, frankly, more than it is about the, the gate of the ticket revenue. Um, but it's really about the television. Switching away from COVID for a second, but staying on college. Um, there's been recent talk about getting college athletes paid. Can, can you talk about those developments and what the role of the agent might be? Yeah, look, this is uh, the name and image and likeness thing is obviously a big topic. And, and let me start by saying uh, the system is messed up and broken and needs to be fixed. Uh, I just think the name, image, and likeness is the absolute wrong way to fix a problem because it actually doesn't fix the problem. Um, because if your assumption is take aside the argument that it actually, uh, again, I'll go back to UCLA. So UCLA pays the, UCLA athletic department pays the university for the cost of every student athlete. So there's 600 and some odd student athletes at UCLA. The athletic department actually writes a check to the university for the cost of those students. So, but let's take that aside and say that's not a benefit for the athletes, right? Um, which there's a whole other argument to be had about whether free education and access to that opportunity is, is value or not. Just take that aside and say that they are being asked to operate like professional athletes and not being paid. And so that they should be able to benefit from their personality. Well, take UCLA again as an example. How many students have a name, image, and likeness of those 640 that's valuable? In my view, less than five. If you want to be generous, say 10. And by the way, they're all men. And nine of the 10 probably play football. <laughs> so you're not really fixing the system. You're helping the 
the ones who are at the high end do well. And by the way, you're not going to let them do a shoe deal because that's what keeps the universities afloat. So you're going to take the most valuable category away. Are you going to let them do deals that compete with university sponsors or not? Probably not. So now you've reduced, you've eliminated the next five or six most valuable categories. So what are we really talking about? Thousands of dollars in tchotchke categories for a very, very small group of athletes. That does not solve the problem they're trying to solve. And by the way, it actually exacerbates and might be a violation of Title IX because it's almost going to create massive disproportionate between men and women or, or boys and girls at, at the university. So my problem is the system is broken, but this doesn't fix it. This probably makes it worse. Is there any, any method that you've heard of, like out-of-the-box thinking, minimum payments to athletes, you know, splitting it up, anything that um, can kind of change that dynamic on, on the payment to athletes? Um, it's hard because, again, you know, if you just think about the economics of the athletic department, if it's 80% football, then you're benefiting one team in one gender. So that doesn't help. The, that doesn't fix anything. You know, yeah. you can't just say the system's broken, but we don't really care about the women's softball player. We only care about the quarterback. That's not, that's not, that's not the solution either. So a problem that is equal across a university's athletic department and treats all the student athletes equally is almost impossible. And it. if it exists, it's uneconomic, frankly. Uh, that's the problem. Uh, and so the truth is there should be lots of things that are in place, right? You should have four-year scholarships that are guaranteed. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things you can do to create more security, more stability, uh, in the marketplace for those student athletes. Some of the restrictions are goofy. Uh, you should be forced to feed the athletes three meals a day. You know, the things that, the things that cause them to go off the rails uh, and do the things underhanded is, is, is ridiculous, and the NCAA should absolutely fix those things. This name, image, likeness thing is, I actually think, going to turn out to be a disaster. Um. Let's talk to something that's hopefully uh, a different topic on um, hopefully we get to the point where you talked about before where all the seasons get underway. Let's leave college off for a second, but hopefully we do see most of these seasons kick off. But on this, on the standpoint that they're either shortened, you know, baseball mid June is obviously, I don't know if it's half a season, but it's probably not far away from half a season. Do players get half their salary? If a season is canceled, um, do players not get paid? You know, we've seen a lot of the, uh, just the, kind of the, the reference point is a lot of the cable CEOs and satellite CEOs have said, you know, we'll return money for sports networks if the players give back the money to the networks that are paying them. And so, you know, obviously the waterfall is, is all the way down from distributor to programmer to um, the actual teams, leagues, and then the players. I guess everyone's basically saying it's, it's up to the players. And I just, how does all of that work? Like what are the actual rules on how players get paid? You know, again, sport by sport. I mean, I, I laugh that, um, you know, we represent a, a ton of PGA golfers um, and obviously not something we'd ever looked at before. And clearly no one had really contemplated it, but not one of our athletes, right? Not from Jason Day to Ricky Fowler to any of them have in their contracts 
number of events to play because no one ever contemplated golfers wouldn't play events. They actually like to play more events. Uh, and then you've got NBA players understanding that they're going to need to take a salary reduction going forward, which has already been agreed to, and, and that's appropriate. I think everyone understands that everyone's interests are aligned, which is the economics of the system work only if people are playing the sport and, and owners own teams, they have venues, ultimately they're filled with people, athletes are on the field competing and all of that goes on TV and people enjoy watching and, and, and embracing that happening. And I think all the athletes understand that they'll have to uh, be a part of the solution and being part of the solution means adjusting their economics. Um, I think to put it solely on the, on the athletes is a gigantic mistake uh, because I don't think it's an accurate reflection of, uh, of the situation, but they, I think I have yet to hear an athlete say, I'm not, I don't care. I'm not taking a dollar less for what I was contracted for as long as everyone's at the table doing what's appropriate to get us back on the field to play, we're prepared to do what we need to do to be a part of the solution. When you think about um, the NBA Tech Summit, which seems to me like forever ago, and I was hanging out with you and many other people uh, in a very large group session, shaking a lot of hands. But, um, you know, at that event, um, there was a lot of chatter on stage um, about kind of the future of regional sports networks. Uh, Mark Cuban's probably been one of the more vocal about the topic. Jim Dolan was on stage sort of worrying about sort of what the future as sort of the cable model shifts. What do you think? Like, you know, you got three sports, NBA, NHL, and Major League Baseball, very much tied to the kind of regional sports network cable bundle that is clearly shrinking. I mean, it may not be going away, but it's clearly shrinking. What would you like? What do you see as the future for those sports and their regional local rights? It's, uh, I mean, it's, it is the question, Rich. It's, it's, it's the thing everyone knows is happening and has been watching the, the sort of the car crash happen slowly. And what you might've just seen now in, in this environment is, uh, uh, the remnants of the car crash, uh, cause it's, it's, it's all out for discussion. Uh, and the question has always been, what's the transition going to look like? I don't think anybody was questioning whether you were going away from, forcing regional sports networks to be carried broadly on the most basic sort of structure. And I don't think a lot of people would question whether eventually you'll be in a very, some version of a direct-to-consumer who is delivering that experience, who is getting paid for that experience, maybe it's new, new bundlers, if you will, new channels, whether it's phones or cable companies or internet or, or platforms or the teams themselves. Yeah. Just no one knew what the transition was going to look like. And what you might be seeing now is the, other than we have contracts in place, the acceleration of this transition. Uh, and I think that teams are going to get much more proactive about connecting with and connect, communicating with their consumers. I mean, just look, what we're doing here now, today, for this hour, is connecting with a set of your consumers, constituents, clients, partners, friends, in a way that you probably never would have thought about doing before. The Dodgers did a Zoom call the other day. They had to expand it so that because there were 10,000 people on the Zoom call, Dodger fans, including you know, our client, Kenley Jansen, was on there and a few other players. And the Dodgers never done a Zoom call before. Frankly, I'm not sure they ever cared about talking to their customers other than having them come to the ballpark. What were they doing? Like answering questions? Like what, what exactly well, yeah. was it? Answering questions, you know, talking about what they were doing. I mean, they were just, frankly, 
opening up uh, a, a little bit of, of what they're doing and how they're going through this and talking about baseball, what they're doing to be prepared and answering questions, just, just like we're doing here. And so I think the ability, you know, it, it, people always used to say, you know, the Lakers have 20 million fans and everyone just believed it. But now we can actually, the Lakers now can actually get in a very direct way, communicate, deliver to those 20 million fans. And I think regional channels will start to look a lot more like a season ticket package, which is, you know, you, you buy your package and you get your games and you only want home games. You only want road games. You only want games on Saturdays. You want games every day. You want every game everywhere. The ability to consume that. And I'm not sure it's cheaper for the consumer, but it's certainly your, the consumers who want it are paying for it and getting it. And the ones who don't clearly are going to have that option. I think we're accelerating towards that environment. And it's just, this is just calling the question, I think, a lot quicker, forcing people to deal with the issue a lot quicker than they imagined they would have had to. Because as you know, the, the, embedded, the embedded contracts are so long-term that the, 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 the transition was going to be slow and unnatural. Um, you know, the, the Lakers have, I don't know, what, 15 years left on their deal with Spectrum? I mean, they don't have to, as long as Spectrum's a business, they're getting paid and they don't have to deal with this. So. I think, you know, this may accelerate all those conversations and open people up to different opportunities and, you know, take a team like the Clippers who only has a short-term deal. They come out of this and they got an owner who's well, uh, obviously, uh, supported financially and is going to build a new arena and wants to accelerate his brand and wants to be different in the marketplace. You know, Bomber might just take a real big chance with the, with the Clippers and forego a lot of the guaranteed revenue to be ahead of the curve as opposed to being behind the curve. Staying on sports rights, the NFL was supposed to get underway with divvying up their rights for their next package. Can you talk a little bit about how you see that ultimately playing out? When do you think negotiations start in earnest again? Who winds up with the packages? And do we see the digital bidders really come to the table for the first time? I would imagine if not right this second, uh, they are essentially um, going to engage in those conversations imminently. Um, uh, I think it's incumbent upon them to go first for their own benefit because they're going to take the lion's share of the, of the pot of gold, if you will. So you might as well be at the front of the line instead of the back of the line. Uh, so I, I imagine they're going to have those conversations soon. Uh, you know, the key to the NFL's uh, economics is have one more person with – then there are seats at the table. Um, and so I'm not sure that it's entirely going to be driven by uh, more bidders, although you'll have some new bidders for sure. Uh, but I think you may have bidders just like Fox did uh, taking essentially the Thursday night package in addition to their Sunday. Existing bidders take more um, because frankly, it's good for their economics and it's, and it's the NFL has proven to be really valuable. So you're going to see, a mix. I'm no doubt there will be a couple digital bidders that to me, the obvious ones are going to be, uh, I would actually start to think about ESPN as both a, a traditional and a digital bidder with, with not just ESPN plus, but Hulu as, as platforms that they could leverage their content on. Um, the other thing overlaying all this is what happens to Sunday ticket. How does that get mixed into this? How does that get re divvied up or reallocated or resold or sold as it always has been? Uh, which creates opportunities for companies like AT&T now that has Warner Media, you know, and has a direct-to-consumer business uh, in, in HBO Max that may or may not have sports on it. So you're going to start to see some interesting pieces here, and there's no question that the value of the 
the NFL rights is, is obviously second to none and second to probably everybody else combined. Um, and so uh, you're, you're going to see lots of bidders. The, uh, the true digital players, to me, the only ones who are even possibly real uh, are Netflix and Amazon. Uh, I mean, sorry, uh, Amazon and, and Apple. Um, I don't believe Apple's a real bidder for NFL rights because for Apple to go into the, the live sports business, I think they need scale. Uh, and by definition, buying NFL rights doesn't give them enough scale to have a product. Um, lots of other sports do, but there's just not enough uh, NFL games and enough windows for them. Uh, Amazon, clearly, they are already a partner of the NFL as it, as it relates to the Thursday night. And they just renewed that or extended that for a year. And I think they could very easily uh, uh, potentially be a bidder for some or, or some version of, of the collection of rights that are going to be on the table. And the real question is, is the NFL going to go to market in the traditional way? Are they going to go with a Sunday package that's AFC and NFC? Or are they going to go to a Sunday package that has windows? Uh, and are they going to be two windows or three windows? Uh how do they think about Monday night versus Sunday night? Uh, there's just a lot of moving pieces, and I think the NFL is going to, as they always have, uh, go to market with the opportunity that gives them the best chance to maximize revenue, which they are quite good at. Okay, so water pistol to head again. <laughs> how, how, how do you see the packages playing out? Who gets packages? Who doesn't? Does anyone get two? And do any digital bidders actually wind up with anything? Um, I think you're going to see one of the existing bidders lose. And I think it's going to be one of the other existing bidders taking more product. Um, For what it's worth, we agree with you. Oh, good. I mean, look, so, I, you know. Um, we agree. I mean, we'll see. I mean, the, the thing that worries me, Casey, in answering that question from Brandon right now is I think I had, I think all of us had strong conviction of what might happen where we're struggling right now is just looking at the stock market and looking at the state of the economy. And, you know, I, I, I companies that thought they were going to re up and I realize it's still several years away before you pay for these things, but with the economy looking like it does forget about what the stock market shows on in terms of the actual um, prices of things. But if you look at kind of the health of some of these companies and the earnings, I just worry that do people take a step back or do they just realize that there's nothing like the NFL and you just gun it no matter what? And I think that's the thing we're sort of wrestling with. And I, I agree. And I think it's sort of a, I totally agree, Rich. And it's a company by company basis. I mean, suffice to say, I bet the folks at Warner Media and NBC Universal are thrilled they're owned by companies with diverse revenue streams beyond just the media business, right? I mean, uh, AT&T and, and Comcast are diverse businesses with lots of revenue streams from lots of different places. And they're, uh, and that's, that's good. Uh, and I just think it's crazy that three months ago, you know, D Disney, rightfully so, was the envy of the entire media landscape. And now their entire business, unimaginably, essentially has gone to zero revenue. Uh, I mean, not literally zero, but, you know. It, not far, but yeah, you got the point. Uh, yeah. And so it, it, it's a crazy thing. You know, the, other, the question is, what happens to a, a Viacom CBS? Can they compete at the scale without the balance sheet, frankly, that Disney has and the diversity of revenue streams that some of the other bidders have? Uh, for the rights. And, and I imagine they're going to try really hard because they have been very clear that this is must have programming for them, especially as it relates to their retrans economics. But whether they can do that in this environment, and if the NFL goes to market in this environment, that's a, that's going to be a hard conversation for them to have with themselves. So just your thoughts on that, your Apple scale comments, scale in what context? Obviously they can reach a lot of users. This would be Apple TV. They don't give any TV plus, they don't give any numbers on. So 
services is a huge business for them. Yeah, well, I mean, scale of scale of, of quantity of product, right? So, you know, for Apple to do it the way they like to do things, they're going to build an organization to execute against it and to build an organization, which will take, by the way, a couple of years, I imagine, or 18 months. Because uh, just look at how they built um, Apple Plus. Uh, they built a production enterprise to go produce their own content that then they distribute. That took a couple of years. They didn't go buy anything. And to, to buy... And then if, you know, to buy, make it up, to buy Monday Night Football, it's one game a week. It's 17 games. It's just not, it's not enough for them to go make that investment. You know, they're better off going to buying the rights to. Um, what, about Sunday, fo- what about Sunday ticket rights? A, a college football conference. Yeah, Sunday ticket is, is certainly a possibility. The question for Sunday ticket is, is that, is that a product in its current form the NFL is going to take the market? Because the challenge to me with Sunday ticket is the NFL created a better product that's widely available and it's called Red Zone. Uh, Red Zone is a killer product. Uh, And so how do you handle that versus the value or diminishing value, if you will, of the traditional Sunday ticket package? What is, you know, can you think about pay-per-view in a different way as it relates to what Sunday ticket is? So I think all that's going to get reimagined. Uh, but I just think Apple to do something does it incredibly well, incredibly thoughtfully, uh, incredibly insularly, if that's a word. And that requires them to have a scale of product to do that against. And I assume that based on what you're saying, there's no concern within the ecosystem about whether Streaming um, can handle any of these types of rights. Uh, Technologically, that's just not, that's an afterthought in terms of putting the product somewhere where you might have some glitches. I think it's, look, it's not, look, it's not perfect. Uh, Look, turning on ESPN on your cable box or your direct TV dish is a perfect viewing experience. Um, getting that stream on a device and, and, and pushing it to your television or just watching it on your device is not quite as perfect, but I think it's accelerating so fast. It's a non-issue. And I guess we may have another day for football, right? Cause if there's no col- if you're right on college moving to, to February, I assume we're pro football all afternoon on Saturday, assuming we get off the ground in October. Is that fair? Uh, I actually don't think the NFL would do that this year because I know they would think it'd be a temporary thing. Uh, only if I think the circumstances force them race to play in different locations or less locations would they do that so that they could play a doubleheader in LA and a doubleheader in Dallas and, a, you know, on a Saturday, Sunday or two games on Saturday and two games. I was on just Sunday thinking the media companies would die for the ratings oh, and the revenue they, attached they to it. Right. Would. They definitely would. But if half the events that are planned for the fall happen, we'll have plenty of stuff to watch in the fall. So, so um, I want to just turn to the Olympics. We've got a few minutes left and, you carried the torch in 1984 in Los Angeles. Uh, everyone watching may not know that about you, but you know, you're sharing this entire 2028 Olympics that's coming back to LA. And I think our good mutual friend, Jason Hershorn said, you've got some big, interesting ideas for kind of what the Olympics are going to look like. Can you give us like a, a, a glimpse or, or some thoughts of like what that means and what it's going to look like versus what we normally see and think about with the Olympics? Yeah, so here, here, here's where I start from, which is, you know, we don't, we, we don't have to build any permanent venues in Los Angeles, literally none. Um, and that's nice, and that's, we're lucky, and that's great. 
Um, but what it really means is, you know, I, I like to tell people we don't own the copyright on, on innovation and good ideas for the Olympics, but we do own the copyright on being able to do them. Uh, you know, in Paris this morning, they woke up at the Paris 2024 offices, which obviously is the summer games right before us. And they had a part of their office that had all these amazing ideas and innovation and sustainability and reimagining ticketing and reimagining transportation and venues and all this stuff. And then another part of their office, they went, oh, uh, we haven't broke ground on the Olympic Village, which has to house 17,500 athletes in less than four years from today. Oh, shit. Forget about all those good ideas. We're really focused on the good ideas go out the window in a hurry. And in the LA 28, if we were allowed in our offices today, we would have sat around and talked about all those good ideas. And then we would have turned around and looked outside the window at UCLA and seen the dorms that are housing 17,500 students from all over the world today. And we would have turned back around and went back to the good ideas. So what I mean is we now have the chance to actually execute on all the cool ideas. So from, from the plethora of venues we have and how does that let you reimagine how you present the competition to uh, the schedule okay, swimming's first, the first week, and athletics is the second week. Uh, why? Like, when you have the venues we have, how about we program the games for both the maximum benefit for in-person experience and the maximum television benefit in the markets that matter most for those sports? So if team handball is popular in Europe, well, let's play the final in the morning, but let's play it in a place where there might be other people going to other events Put a USA basketball game. Uh oh. Did we? Casey? All right. Let's just, uh... Hold on. We'll ad lib. Hopefully, he'll Train come right back. You're... He's back. Oh, I hear him. You there? We lost you for a second. Oh, sorry. I, I, I don't know what, which part you got, but, you know, just um, imagine from the schedule to the presentation to the mundane of how, how, the, how an app can help manage you getting around the city and getting to venues and how you tie that back to your tickets and credentials and all that stuff to what does it look like to be a sustainable Olympics. I just think there's so much opportunity to, to reimagine and to start fresh. And to do that in a place like LA where you don't have to build things is a truly unique opportunity. And we're going to take full advantage of that. And, you know, uh, for those of you who know me, uh, I'm, you know, we'll definitely do it first and, and ask for forgiveness <laughs> later. We have a question from the crowd from an anonymous attendee. <laughs> <laughs> what is the likelihood of the Tokyo Summer Olympics actually happening in 2021? And then I'm going to add to that. In order for it to happen, what kind of procedures need to be in place? I know it's a year away. Hopefully there will be a vaccine, a cure, whatever. Um, but as of now, what procedures need to be in place? And what kind of participation from would-be 2020 athletes are we going to actually see in 21? So let me just create a little bit of the context. Um, um, Eight weeks ago, the IOC, and I have a call with them once a week on this, uh, told me that the World Health Organization was telling the IOC the virus will be under control in the Northern Hemisphere, the game should happen. And that's why the IOC kept going. And what really changed the conversation was the athletes who said that the games may be able to happen, but we're not, an American athlete is not allowed to train right now. 
So Katie Ledecky, favorite to win five or six gold medals, the pool at Stanford was closed. Right. So all of a sudden you had a competitive disadvantage being created based on what country you lived in, and that's not what the Olympics is about. A subtext to that, which no one really wants to talk about, is given what's going on in the world and, and in the entire globe's medical infrastructure is focused on, on COVID-19 and how to solve and manage and, and learn, Suffice to say, there wouldn't have been a whole lot of uh, doping tests being executed leading up to the Olympics, and no way could you have ensured that you had a clean Olympics. I mean, it's hard to ensure that anyway, but in this environment, I would say almost impossible. So what you had was the competitive tension forcing the IOC to delay the games. So with that as a backdrop, uh, about 12,500 athletes actually compete in the games. Already about 6,500 are qualified, so you have about 6,000 left to go. Uh, they've already said that those 6,500 are in for next for the games in 21. Uh, uh, resetting the calendar allows all the other 6,000 to have a normal training cycle to be prepared for their trials to qualify for the games. I do believe the games will happen because I believe uh, what what a vaccine is not necessary to host the Olympic Games next summer. What is necessary is complete testing. So no doubt when we all fly to Tokyo next summer, we're all getting tested but probably before we get on a plane from wherever we get on from, and certainly when we land. And the test, I imagine the results will be nearly instantaneous, and we'll know. And so that, that's happening. Every athlete, every fan, everybody. And I assume there will be some medical uh, 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 remedy that takes it from a two-week really difficult, um, in, in most circumstances at worst, difficult medical situation to more like you stay home for two or three days and get a cold. Um, because by the way, people, you know, well, you don't, you know, it's not, I'm not saying there's the same thing as the flu, but in the Olympic village, people get a cold. It's, it spreads like wildfire. Everybody gets it. And so you take antibiotics, you take Tamiflu, whatever, and you go out and you compete. So as long as you have a system that's sort of fair and can keep people capable of doing all that, uh, uh, the gains will happen. And I feel fairly certain the gains will happen. It's a source of obviously great national pride in Japan. It's not just economic. It's, it's, they are a proud country. This is a really important moment for them. It, a lot of it ties back to Fukushima and the disaster there. And this really is important to them culturally and for their future. And I'm fairly certain these games will happen next summer. You know, Casey, when you think about brands, so much of, you know, whether it's the Olympics or whether it's I mean, just sports in general, I mean, I think out of 70 billion of, of TV ad spend, I think 20 billion plus probably is tied in some way to sports, maybe even more when you bundle in marketing dollars. So much of your business is tied to marketing. I guess I'm curious, like, what are the most interesting things you're seeing brands do with your athletes during this sort of sports hiatus? Like, who's taking, who's like taking advantage? I don't want to say advantage, but like, who's using this kind of break to to do really interesting work marketing wise with your talent? Well, I think what you're seeing is brands understanding something that we've been saying for a long time, which is, you know, athletes either individually or aggregate. Uh, can provide an audience and should be thought of much like a network. Uh, they have reach, they have frequency, they have authenticity, they have the ability to connect with their audience and to actually eventually sell product. And so, you know, I think the brands are now at this moment seeing that without sports on TV and, and these relationships with these athletes, they can still use those athletes to their benefit. And I think that's where the world is, has been going and this is certainly accelerating. And so whether it's the obvious ones like Nike really working with their athletes to what those athletes are doing to stay fit at home to, to brands like 
tonal, some of the at-home workout equipment stuff, you know, using athletes to, to talk about their workouts and, and their home environments to, you know, mundane stuff of, you know, beverages and, and snacks and things. I just think what you're really seeing is that athletes, um, uh, when used properly by these brands, can reach a real audience in a way that's very efficient and very effective and have just as much credibility um, uh, as just about any other channel. And even in the absence of sports, they're still valuable. And so brands are doing interesting things. They're not afraid to, to do that. I mean, just open up your Instagram. And if you follow, you know, I've never seen so many live streams around nine and 10 in the morning about people doing fitness workouts in my entire life. Uh, and there's a lot of that. There's a lot of athletes just getting on and talking to people and, and connecting with people and fans and friends and, through teams and season ticket holders. And, and so the power of an athlete remains their power uh, and their ability to connect with people remains. And, and now's the time where ath- uh, brands are understanding that they can probably do that in ways they, they never thought about before. Running short on time now, but I have one important question for you, which is can Leon Rose fix the next? Um, so I, I just look. <laughs> uh, He's smiling too as he answers it. The Knicks is a straight shot song. That's why I asked the question. Look, the Knicks have the Knicks have obviously a structural problem with their with their the, the moves they've made in the past and have put them in the bind they're in structurally with lack of picks and salary cap issues. There's there's you know they're in a they're in an environment that's not as free. Um, uh, certainly, Leon knows basketball. Um, um, but building a good basketball organization is different than being an agent. And it's a hard transition. No different than being an agent in Hollywood is not the same as being a studio executive. Uh, being an executive is about building a culture and an organization. Being an agent is about being a lone ranger and being transactional. And so not saying that Leon can't do that. It's just a different skill set that he's going to now find out if he can do. Uh, and, you know, look, the Knicks need to pick a plan and stick with it. Uh, and I think one of the biggest mistakes they have made over the past is they have changed course too often, whether it's coaches or general managers or strategy or offense or defense or players or stars or not stars or rebuilding or loading. You know, that's not the way to succeed. To succeed is sort of relentless consistency over a long period of time. And the organizations that do that, do that well and win over a long period of time. And that's about management and leadership not about recruiting any individual athlete. And so I hope Leon's successful because frankly, the NBA is a better place when the Knicks are good. Uh, and when the Knicks are good, that, that, that environment at, at Madison Square Garden, and I've been to playoff games during when, in the 90s when they were good. It's, it's unlike almost any other environment. It's good for the league. Uh, it's good for the players. It's good for the broadcasters. I hope they get good. Uh, all I'm saying is it's a skill set that is different than being an agent. And if he's good at it, then they'll be successful. And if he's not, then they won't. And that's not an indictment of Leon Rose. He was a great agent. Uh, and and But if he can build an organization and build a culture and build a structure and execute a plan and hire the right people and empower the right people to do their jobs, and by the way, manage his owner appropriately and all those things that being an executive requires, then they'll be successful. I also have a business type question like that. The, uh, the shortstop market after 2021, you got like three, four, five guys coming up on free agencies. I mean, when you have that type of, of uh, you know, market, does that 
materially change the free free agent market when something like that happens? I'm only focused on Javi. So as long as Javi gets paid, I'm good. All right. I mean, it seems like a pretty good setup for him. Yeah, Javi's in a good place. He's, I think he's become one of the true stars of baseball. Uh, he's an, obviously an incredible player. He's got an awesome personality. He's an awesome guy. And, uh, and obviously playing for the Cubs gives him a great platform to, to be a superstar. So as long as Javi Baez is the top of the list, I'm in good shape. All right. Okay, I have one really last one. Speaking about (laughs) agents who have become GMs, how do you grade Brody Van Wagenen? How do you grade him so far? Uh, Too early to tell. Um, One bad trade, but yeah, but too early to tell. You know, baseball is a different. It's a different life cycle. It takes a. It takes a while to. You know, what baseball has shown lately is that if you can't build a farm system and develop your own talent, it's really hard to succeed over a long period of time, and that takes time. Uh, and I don't, I don't know the, the scale uh, of, of the challenges in the minor league system for the Mets. Um, um, so definitely too early to tell. I, but I, just to be fair, I, when I grade GMs as uh, executive, former agents as, as executives, I will always put Bob Myers at the top of the list since he was an employee of mine for nine years. Well, Casey, I just want to say on behalf of everyone at Lightshed, thank you for taking the time today. I know this is sort of uh, something different, but we really wanted to get you in front of so many people and, and have this conversation. And I think there's just so much interest in the future of sports. And I know you and everyone that you represent is rooting for things to get back to whatever the new normal is. So thank you for taking the time. Stay safe, be healthy, and um, talk to you soon. You too, Rich. Appreciate it. Enjoyed it. Thanks.